20 years ago, a young lawyer penned a provocative article about a politically sensitive issue. What should happen when special counsels investigate sitting presidents for potential criminal conduct? The country had been through a number of these, the lawyer wrote, from Watergate to Iran-Contra to Whitewater, and they were always fraught with major tensions. The special prosecutors or independent counsels are inevitably publicly attacked by the presidents they are investigating with poisonous impacts on potential witnesses or even jurors. Their subpoenas are resisted by the president's lawyers who throw up a barrage of privilege claims, some of them spurious or even frivolous. But most of all, the lawyer fretted about the impact on the country of a president who was threatened with criminal prosecution. Quote, the indictment of a president would be a disabling experience for the government as a whole and was, quote, fraught with peril, the lawyer wrote. The president is not simply another individual. He is unique. He is the embodiment of the federal government and the head of a political party. If he is to be removed, the entire government would likely suffer. The lawyer's suggestion, one he repeated eight years later in another Law Review article, was for Congress to enact a statute declaring flatly, the President of the United States is not subject to indictment or information under the laws of the United States while he serves as President. The lawyer who wrote that was Brett Kavanaugh, who had served as an associate independent counsel under Ken Starr investigating Bill Clinton, and this week was nominated by President Donald Trump to the Supreme Court. We'll talk about what Kavanaugh's writings tell us about how he would handle issues relating to Robert Mueller's investigation into President Trump with a former close colleague of his in the Bush White House, and with a liberal activist who is doing everything she can to block his confirmation on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, editor-in-chief of Yahoo News. You know, Dan, looking back on this uh, Kavanaugh piece from 1998 in the Georgetown Law Review, uh, it is really eerie how much he anticipated so many of the issues we're dealing with today in Mueller's investigation uh, into, uh, into Trump and ties to Russia. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, it, as soon as uh, Brett Kavanaugh was nominated— um, uh, by President Trump, the uh, you know the liberals um, and Democrats were immediately tweeting about Roe versus Wade that that was going to be the singular issue that this battle was going to be fought over, and it's interesting um, how over the last uh, few days, uh, largely because of these law review articles uh, that that were dug up and, and have been written about, um, how the the conversation has shifted to questions about um, executive power, about whether you can indict a sitting president or, or even investigate a sitting president, and of course, the Mueller investigation. And so once again, 
Trump and Russia and Mueller are sucking up all the oxygen in Washington. <laughs> right. Although uh, I should say, to give us uh, both a pat on the back, our skullduggery of a couple of weeks ago with Ron Klain, he laid out how the, these issues were going to be central in the uh, Supreme Court confirmation battle. Of course, at that time, we didn't know it was going to be Kavanaugh, although he was uh, clearly uh, a front runner. Uh, but um, um, they are they are going to be front and center and even more so now that we've got these law review articles. But we've got a, uh, a truly special guest uh, today uh, on the show, uh, a guy who worked with Brett Kavanaugh closely in the Bush White House uh, and can share his insights not only into what kind of um, what kind of colleague Brett Kavanaugh was, what kind of guy he was, but also his views on uh, executive power and many of uh, other issues that are going to be uh, key in this confirmation battle. It's Tim Flanagan, Deputy White House Counsel under uh, under President George W. Bush. Tim, uh, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks, thanks, Mike. It's good to be here, and I I just want to. Say that's a really cool name for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, we enjoy it uh, as, as well. Well, Isakoff, who came up with the name, yeah. n- knows a thing or two about skullduggery. <laughs> Both others, yeah, I, others, I, and his own. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wasn't going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did. <laughs> well, uh, feel free to go wherever you want, uh, Tim. So tell us about Brett Kavanaugh. You worked with him uh, for a, a number of years in the Bush White House. Um, give sure. us your thoughts. Yeah, it, it was at the beginning of the George W. Bush administration. Um, uh, Al Gonzalez um, was to become the deputy or was to become the White House counsel. I was to be his deputy. And uh, really, before I accepted the deputy position, um, uh, Al Gonzalez had put together what I call the dream team uh, of lawyers for the White House Counsel's Office staff, approximately nine um, lawyers, men and women, uh, extremely well qualified, many or most of them Supreme Court law clerks. And and Brett was one of that group and and a star player in that group. Uh, He was... um, uh, you know, I, I first met Brett in the in the transition, the few days of the of the transition that I participated in, and then I uh, got to work with him closely in the White House, with you know forming some pretty strong impressions of him and his his character. Um, I'll have to say all positive, so I'm not I'm not, I'm not going to be of any help to you if you're looking for for a negative on Brett. He's you know he was a he was a you know very able lawyer, um, but also a very good and decent person too. You got the impression dealing with him that, you know, he was steady, uh, that he um, was careful in his thinking, um, that he was fair. Um, You know, Brett really kind of exuded the qualities that you wanted. Um, You know, the White House Counsel's Office is a really challenging place to practice law just because of the, you know, the way the issues come at you so fast and so many of them. And, um, you know, a, a true ideologue in that position, I think, would be handicapped because, you know, they'd be trying to force fit uh, issues into legal conclusions and a pre- foreordained legal conclusions. Well, you know, and Brett, on, Brett, on the other hand, you could rely on him to really take the time and the effort and bring the sort of the perspective to understand what an issue was 
and to help us reach the right result for the president. Let me ask you about that, Tim, because obviously the the rap on him from uh, liberals and Democrats right now are that he is an ideologue, uh, that he will that he was chosen because of his firm and fixed views on issues that are of importance to um, uh, to conservatives and the Federalist Society perspective on uh, on the law. Um, but you say you did not view him as that ideological, and if so, can you give us no. an example? Um, yeah, I guess, Mike, it depends on how you <clears throat> define an ideologue. I define one as someone who never lets the facts get in the way of a good pre- you know, preordained conclusion, and Brett was not that type of lawyer, I and mean, he was somebody who was willing to go where the law and the facts led him. Now, of course, he had a point of view. I mean, he was uh, a young conservative, um, but, you know, I've I've dealt with young conservatives, young liberals, uh, both, you know, and, you know, true ideologues in the sense that I that I mentioned on both sides. And Brett was not one of those. I mean, he was not one who would basically just, you know, sort of charge ahead towards that conclusion, you know, d- you know, damn the facts and the law. Uh, he was going to get there. That was that was just not his approach. Tim, um, um, t- tell us a little bit about um, his responsibilities in the council's office. Um because a couple couple of them, I think, are are very relevant uh, to uh, to uh, uh, the conversation about him right now. One of them um, is uh, was judicial selection. The council's office plays a, a key role in advising the president on who to put on the federal court. Um, and the other one um, is getting back to the uh, to Mike's intro is uh, protecting the prerogatives of the of the presidency and and. Um, you know, being a staunch advocate for uh, for executive uh, power. So, how did yeah. uh, how did uh, Brett um, uh, deal with those kinds of issues? Yeah, er- everyone in the office had some role in judicial selection, both for the for the um, uh, lower federal courts as well as becoming engaged in what I think probably every administration calls the Supreme Court project, uh, that is vetting uh, possible justices for um, you know potential or future vacancies. Uh, Brett had particular responsibility around the D.C. Circuit. Uh, And um, I remember there were a number of cases in which he had to evaluate candidates who were strongly supported um, by, uh, I guess, competing candidates who were strongly supported from various sides and came up with kind of reasoned analyses as to why this this judge or or this, uh, this person should go on uh, uh, that very important court of appeals, the D.C. Circuit. Uh, I remember him being involved in uh, the confirmation uh, effort around um, Miguel Estrada. Uh, I remember him playing a significant role there, as well as, I believe, the nomination of of Janice Brown. Um, uh, 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 Neither of whom, well, let's see, Miguel Estrada did not make it onto the D.C. Circuit. Right, right. uh, you 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 can't want them all, yeah. um, but um, uh, in the uh, in the area of kind of executive power, uh, Brett was in the thick of um, the uh, you know very early on in the in the administration. You know you start to get the requests from Congress that that quickly escalate into more than requests. Uh, for information about the, you know, about the, the deliberations within the executive branch uh, and different policy choices that were made, and Brett was um, uh, very, 
very involved in that, in part because he'd had a good baseline of experience dealing with the executive branch and dealing with Congress as well in his role in the independent counsel's office. So he knew how all of these issues relating to um, executive power and the the search for you know, the push for information about executive deliberations, how that plays out between and, the, the the White House and Congress. And of course, you took uh, or the 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 Bush White House took a pretty hard line with a lot of those requests. I remember early on, uh, Congress wanted the the. Um, uh, who was meeting with Vice President Cheney on his energy task force? Uh, the, right. uh, the members were kept secret. Congress was demanding, I think, a GAO accounting of that. And uh, that was resisted. Right. Right. It was. And um, I, I always thought Brett brought a careful um, uh, approach to that type of issue. I think, you know, obviously sitting in the White House representing not the president as an individual, but the presidency, you know, Brett had an institutional client and I thought he did a great job of, of advocating the interests of that client. You know, well, I want to uh, get to the executive, uh, to the uh, issues uh, relating to the Mueller uh, investigation in a moment. But before that, as you know, uh, everybody is now pouring over the records of the Bush White House or are preparing to pour over those to look for uh, those controversial issues that Brett Kavanaugh may have sent emails or uh, or memos about. And the ones that leap to mind are, of course, warrantless wiretapping, enhanced interrogation, whether that constituted torture or not. Um, did uh, Kavanaugh have uh, involvement in those issues? And if so, what perspective did he bring? No, I, I don't recall Brett having any involvement in in those issues relating uh, to the war on terror. I think he was uh, he was helping on other matters uh, that were uh, related to the aftermath of 9-11, uh, but he was not central to the, the discussions regarding the war on terror uh, or, or uh, enhanced interrogation and so forth. I mean, he may have had at some point some role in reviewing uh, someone else's work in that regard, but I, I just... You know, try try as I can. I can't recall him as having a central role there. Was he a David Addington acolyte? Uh, no, no, um, <laughs> no. David Addington, uh, of course, was the hardline chief counsel for Vice President Cheney. Yeah, uh, and and I'll say a dear friend uh, of mine, but but uh, also someone who uh, um, was not viewed. I, I don't I don't think I don't think Brett would would, would no one would have. Uh, confused Brett Kavanaugh with da- with uh, with David Addington. Um, Brett's views were um, more. Uh, I want to say this without being offensive to my good friend David Addington, but they, <laughs> they were more measured. Uh, they were more uh, carefully calibrated around you know what was needed for the for the particular issue at hand. Um, you know, D- David was is, was tremendously effective as a counsel to Vice President Cheney and later, of course, as his chief of staff um, in terms of helping to um, uh, clarify legal issues around the administration. But he had to, because of his position as um, Cheney's counsel, you know, not occupying a necessary seat at the table. Sometimes he had to, he had to uh, fire some spectacular fireworks to sort of get people's <laughs> attention. That, that was completely antithetical to Brett's style. Um, 
you know, Brett, Brett would be almost unnoticeable in the room until he opened his mouth and then noticeable only because he spoke with clarity and uh, and he was and he had his facts marshaled correctly. Uh, Tim, I want to go back to uh, what you were uh, saying before about Brett um, and his uh, uh, vigorous defense of, of presidential um, uh, power, um, and particularly on the subject of executive privilege, because I think uh, you made the point that he brought a certain perspective, having worked um, for the uh, the Whitewater Independent Council, Ken Starr. Um, and of course, you know, um, th- these things can be situational, depending on who your client is. But I was struck, uh, going back to that 1998 Georgetown Law Review article, um, Kavanaugh uh, proposed uh, statutory uh, uh, language um, on on um, uh, on presidential privileges, and I'm going to read this to you, and get, I want to get your reaction. Uh, in response to a federal grand jury or criminal trial subpoena sought by uh, by the United States, no court of the United States shall enforce or recognize a privilege claimed by the president in his official capacity or by an executive de- department or agency, except on the ground of national security or as provided by federal uh, statute or rule that refers specifically to the privileges. Uh, That does not strike me um, as, um, you know, someone who is a kind of a maximalist uh, on on these issues. Um, And so I'm I'm just kind of, you know, wondering, um, you know, if his his views evolved or it was – Basically, because that that's the position, you know, that his client was that his client changed. Um, what, what's your reaction to that language that he proposed to be a, a statute on this issue of executive privilege? Well, I, I have to say, just as an initial matter, um, first of all, before this current um, uh, intense focus of interest on Brett and his record, I, I wasn't familiar with that. Uh, with that law review article, but it does it does surprise me a little bit, or I should say, I think it's no it's noteworthy that that article was written at a time when he was uh, either with the Independent Counsel's Office or he had just left the Independent Counsel's Office. I, I'm not. I think I mean, he had actually just. I think he'd actually just left. But uh, was about to come. But back. was about to come back to write the the Star Report. Yeah, that's right. And we should okay. point so, out that Brett Kavanaugh did write the report that Star sent to Congress, uh, uh, laying out the grounds for the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Okay, so so it would have been um, natural if you simply attributed to Brett um, that that he was basically the 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 uh, representative for the Independent Counsel's Office. You would find it surprising, I think, as I do, that he would take the position that um, basically the president should not be indicted, uh, because after all, you know, the the dearly held dream of every independent counsel, certainly everybody who works for an independent counsel, is that they can end up, you know, indicting a, the, the most senior officer in the in the federal government, namely the the president. Um, but Brett took. Uh, if, if I'm following that correctly, Brett took the opposite view <clears throat> that there should be limitations on it. Well, I, I think that demonstrates kind of a lot of prudence on his part because he, having been in a, a close observer of what was going on in the Whitewater investigation, and, and I guess from his perspective, his, the historical perspective as well, recognized that you know we need our presidents engaged. I mean, we need them involved in the day-to-day affairs of, of governing the, the nation. That's why we elect them as presidents. Now, if, if, you, if you subject them to 
know, there's the term lawfare, Mike, which you may have even coined, um, uh, but law- lawfare, which we apply in the in the war on terror context, certainly has that term has application here. If you bury a president under, you know, legal obligations relating to um, indictments and civil suits and whatnot, uh, you know, you you've you've lost something there. You've lost the full time um, focus and engagement of the president on what he's supposed to be doing, uh, which is you know governing the nation. So what does that um, tell us about how I, I a Justice Kavanaugh would um, uh, deal with issues relating to the Mueller investigation? As you know, it's in the Mueller has been pursuing a uh, an interview with uh, with President Trump uh, uh, for the obstruction phase of his investigation. Trump has been resisting or his lawyers have been resisting. There's a question about whether Mueller will have to will subpoena the president. Um, uh, if he does, inevitably, that would come before the Supreme Court. Um, how would a Justice Kavanaugh, um, given these writings, uh, deal with an issue like that? Yeah, a question I've been thinking about. I think fundamentally it's, it's um, uh, the answer has to be that um, it tells us that a Justice Kavanaugh, if, if, if you if that Justice Kavanaugh were the same individual that wrote this back in uh, 1998, Justice Kavanaugh would probably say there is um, uh, there is authority to um, to indict the president. Should you know? Should um, I, I, I gather there's a rule there's a a rule in the Department of Justice uh, currently that prohibits indicting a sitting president. But putting that aside, he would say that there is no legal bar to indicting the president. And that an action of Congress would be necessary to create that rule. So that that's all I can tease out of that uh, of that law review. I don't think you can I don't think you can make that art, art, law review article read that Brett thinks that the Supreme Court should create such a rule or that there is such a rule that the Supreme Court should apply in this context. I think it's probably the the case that he thinks that it's necessary that there be legislative action. You know, uh, in that same 1998 um, Georgetown Law Review article, he also said uh, the Constitution itself seems to dictate, in addition, that congressional investigations must take place in lieu of criminal investigation when the president is the subject of investigation and that criminal prosecution can occur only after the president has left office. he, he had just come out of uh, Ken Starr's office, which was investigating uh, a sitting president um, and was about to go back in. So, again, um, rather striking that he would say this at that particular time. Um, and also, uh, you know, the, the kind of conversation in Washington has been that it wasn't until he wrote this 2009 Minnesota Law Review article in which he said some of the same things. It was a kind of a slow evolution of thinking um, once he had been in the White House, worked in the counsel's office, and especially worked uh, as uh, uh, staff secretary and and saw uh, the immense pressures on a, on a president that he kind of came to this uh, judgment. Um, but it sounds to me like um, he came. He was thinking about this when he was in Starr's office. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's right. I think I also think that if 
to going back to to the distinction that I drew earlier between the, you know defining an ideologue, um, it, you know Brett as ideologue in the in the Ken Starr um, uh, in in the Independent Counsel's Office in the Clinton administration, one would expect the ideologue to say, you know, uh, uh, we've got the right, you know, we can we can indict the president. Period. End of discussion. You know, we we can do that. Um, uh, similarly, after um, after he had served in the Bush White House, he'd served Bush as president. Uh, one would expect him, if, if he is an ideologue, to say, uh, you know, no, no way. I mean, no one can no one can interfere with the president's uh, activities as such. But but he's not. In neither case is he taking that kind of hardline position. In both cases, it's kind of a reasoned approach to you know recognizing. The real cost to democracy of having a president tied up in litigation, and yet also recognizing the you know the the, the need to be able to pursue a criminal process against a president if you know either while while maybe not while he's in office but after he leaves office. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that's I, I guess I'm seeing further evidence that he's not the ideologue that he may be supposed to be. All, all that said, um, you know, the premise of this article and the uh, and the and the later uh, Minnesota Law Review article is that um, uh, there is a need uh, or he accepts that there is a need for uh, special counsels uh, or special prosecutors because of uh, the perception that uh, uh, a a Justice Department cannot credibly investigate uh, a sitting president uh, who they whose administration they're a part of. Um, so by that same logic, and we're going to hear certainly um, a lot about this when the confirmation hearings begin, given the unique circumstances of uh, this particular nomination at this particular moment by a president who is still under active investigation by a special counsel, should um, a uh, should Kavanaugh recu- commit to recusing himself from any issues relating to the Mueller investigation that might become before the Supreme Court? Yeah, I, I don't see... Uh, from that, I, I don't see the basis for a recusal. Well, that um, Trump named it, him, and Trump is in the midst of the uh, is being investigated. Well, my, you know, the ju- the justice that I clerked for uh, was Chief Justice Warren Burger, and uh, you will recall that um, uh, Richard Nixon nominated him to the court, and you also recall that he was the the author of the court's majority opinion in U.S. versus Nixon. Right. But but uh, Berger was not lot. but Nixon was not under investigation when he nominated Berger to the Supreme Court. Well, I'm, I'm not sure I see the, the relevance of that. There's, you know, unless you think there's a credible suggestion that that, um, you know, Brett or um, or the president uh, believes there's some kind of a deal that uh, that Brett would vote against that. I, I, I frankly would find that preposterous. Uh, that that for, certainly that Brett would give such a commitment, but you know, um, I guess that's an issue that he'll have to address in his confirmation hearing, and I suppose it's an issue that um, will be one that will be closely watched. But frankly, I, I don't see the basis for a recusal there a- any more than I did for 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 Warren Berger. 
Well, uh, it's it's certainly one that's going to come up, and you can. You, I think Democrats are already signaling they're going to push for that. Um, uh, it'll be, uh, and they're also going to certainly try to hold Kavanaugh's feet to the fire on whether he was asked about these questions in the vetting process. I mean, did either the president or Don McGahn, the uh, White House counsel? Uh, grill him on where he would come down on whether uh, a, a president can be subpoenaed by a special counsel. Well, the um, uh, the standard form of questionnaire that I'm sure is is still used in in some iteration uh, by the Senate Judiciary Committee to evaluate any judicial nomination, including that of a of a, um, a Supreme Court justice, um, asked directly for that information. And um, my recollection is that over the years, Democrats and Republicans, in both Democratic and Republican administrations, the answer has always been that they they basically give the substance of the conversations that they've had with the president's underlings, and then they say they've met, you know, they they also met with the president. Um, but um, I you know I don't know I don't know whether that's still the case, and I have no idea how how that question will be answered in this case. Okay, Tim. So last question. Uh, This is one that uh, uh, if Trump uh, could ask um, uh, Brett Kavanaugh um, uh, a question, um, he might have wanted to know the answer to. And since you're a presidential powers maven, uh, I think we are all interested in what you have to say about this. Can a president pardon himself or herself? And do you think that and what do you think Brett Kavanaugh's view uh, of that would be? Um, well, I'll give you my answer first, which is no. I don't believe a president can pardon himself or herself. Um, I know there are strong arguments to the contrary. It just seems to me to be – it's one of those questions that's a legal question, but it's also at the ragged edge of law and politics. And I just don't believe a president could pardon himself or herself credibly. Um, uh, it would seem to me to be tantamount to announcing the end of the presidency. Um, as to what Brett's answer on that is, I, I really can't speculate. I, I don't know what uh, what he would say. Never had never discussed that I recall presidential pardons with him, and well, certainly not in the context of Bush pardoning himself. I got to say, if 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 Tim Flanagan doesn't believe a president can uh, pardon himself, um, it's hard to imagine that Brett Kavanaugh would uh, be a uh, a stronger executive power uh, advocate than uh, than you, Tim. Um, maybe we'd have to go to David Addington <laughs> to find say, somebody yeah. <laughs> who would accept the idea. Uh, but, uh, Tim, hey, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Uh, we appreciate your insights. Real pleasure. Thanks, guys. Take, take care. Take care, Tim. So it was uh, um, it was good to talk to Flanagan again. I hadn't I hadn't spoken to him in years since he was uh, you know in the Bush White House. Uh, but uh, a reminder, you know, really nice, gentle guy, but with some really strong views on uh, on executive power. Yeah, I mean, I um, I always liked uh, talking to Tim. Um, uh, uh, very strong views, very conservative, kind of an. Uh, I would have said an absolutist in some ways on presidential uh, power. But um, he's mellow, apparently. I, yeah, <laughs> and um, what I always liked about him was he was kind of always a kind of a happy warrior. Um, never wow. took anything personally. He he liked reporters, loved talking to the press uh, because 
he wanted to get um, his arguments out there. He's he's a pretty principled guy, believes those things. I thought, um, you know, just going to this point about um, how hardcore he is as a presidential powers person, the last question, I think, was an indication of maybe some mellowing, although this may have been his position 20 years ago. I don't know. But when he said that, uh, you know, uh, he did not believe a president could pardon um, himself or herself. I I do think it is also important uh, to point out um, that Flanagan, uh, as deputy White House counsel in the first couple of years um, of the uh, the Bush administration and in the the days and weeks after 9-11, was um, a central player, um, along with David Addington, who we talked about in formulating um, the kind of legal uh, justification for what became the most controversial um, uh, counterterrorism poli- policies of uh, of the Bush administration and of really the last you know twenty five sure. years or more, uh, which which is you know, still with us. harsh interrogation or torture, um, Guantanamo. Guantanamo. Um, uh, I believe he was involved uh, in warrantless wiretapping uh, as well. Um, and um, you know, I think he would defend a lot of those positions based on um, his view. Uh, of uh, you know the of presidential power and and that uh, under Article Two of the Constitution, president did not need to go to constitu- uh, go to Congress um, for these things, and he had the inherent authority uh, to, um, uh, to 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 you know uh, use these policies uh, because we were at war. Um, so that's just some you know important context. And I got to say, I do remember uh, one thing that leaps out that's relevant today uh, is. Um, Right in the uh, right in the aftermath of the Bush Gore recount fight, went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court famously sided with Bush and gave him the presidency and stopped the uh, the recount that might have swung it in another direction. Uh, I remember uh, Tim recounting a conversation he had with another one of the Bush uh, lawyers, uh, saying. This shows why it matters who controls the Supreme Court. And I think that uh, is probably more true today, even more true today than it was then with so much on the line in the Kavanaugh nomination and would can probably explain the fierce opposition uh, to the Kavanaugh nomination. We're going to hear from our next guest, Nan Aaron. We'll be right back with more Skullduggery. Nan Aaron, president of Alliance for Justice, uh, a uh, group that's gearing up for the uh, Brett Kavanaugh confirmation battle. Uh, Nan, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks so much for having me. What a treat. Hey, Nan, how are you? I'm good. I'm tired. Yeah. But energized. Good, good. So you have been on the front lines of these uh, Supreme Court um, confirmation battles, going back to Bork, right to to Robert Bork, yep. uh, the the Before the mo- Robert Bork, the mother actually. of the mother of all uh, confirmation battles. It certainly was. Um, this was in 1987, and you know I was thinking there's some interesting similarities between the Bork fight and this fight in the sense that both Bork and Brett Kavanaugh have very significant um, records that touch on 
almost every aspect of American life, whether you're a woman, a person of color, an environmentalist, a worker, um, a, a everyday person, Brett Kavanaugh's record spans a huge number of, of issues but, and but, therefore concerns. But, Nan, um, isn't it also the case that pretty much every Supreme Court uh, nominee since Bork um, has learned the, the lesson of uh, the Bork battle, which is to say that they have become much more careful um, in, in, in what they have said publicly or written in academic papers or in opinions uh, uh, about their, their views on uh, you know, controversial uh, issues and, and, and cases. And so while Brett Kavanaugh has a long uh, paper trail, um, it, it's not going to be as easy uh, to pin him down on his views on, say, abortion or, um, uh, you know, um, other uh, hot gun button rights. social issues, gun rights or, or what have you. Correct? Yes and no. Like Robert Bork, and not like Neil Gorsuch. Neil Gorsuch uh, had been on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, and as your listeners know, he he was up for a seat replacing Antonin Scalia. His record was largely confined to ten years of legal opinions on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. Brett Kavanaugh, on the other hand, um, was uh, part, you know, very much part of and a co-author of the Starr Report calling for impeachment of Bill Clinton. He was part of George W. Bush's legal team in the fight over the 2000 presidential election. Um, He was in the White House for several years picking judges and dealing with a whole range of issues, including those related to national security, Abu Ghraib, and the like. There are hundreds of thousands of documents that may shed additional light on Kavanaugh's views, memos he wrote when he worked at the White House, and all the materials he prepared for Ken Starr. So actually, this is a huge record that needs to be carefully reviewed. And the other important point to be made is that Donald Trump said in, when he released his list of 25 names, he said, you know what, I've picked out these names based on two criteria, their opposition to health care law and their opposition to Roe versus Wade. So my, and I think we have to take Donald Trump at his word, therefore, I don't think, like Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh can simply go before the Senate Judiciary Committee and, like Gorsuch, say, oh, I'll follow the law. I'll follow precedent. Don't worry about that because of the fact that we already know what his views are. And secondly, with Neil Gorsuch having said, oh, I believe in precedent, and then overturning precedent – as recently as just a few weeks ago in a workers' rights case, the burden will be on Brett Kavanaugh, not the Senate Judiciary Committee, to demonstrate and to come clean with the committee 
what is actually what is what his views are on a range of issues. Um, so I don't think it's going to be like past hearings in that respect. All right, Nan. A couple things. Uh, uh, first, you f- threw out a, a a number of issues that uh, uh, you said Kavanaugh may have had some involvement in, and you mentioned Abu Ghraib, the torture uh, of, uh, of of prisoners there. Um, we spoke to uh, uh, Tim Flanagan, who was. Uh, basically Kavanaugh's boss in the White House counsel's office in those early days. And he says Kavanaugh didn't have uh, any uh, direct role in any of the issues such as enhanced interrogation, Guantanamo, uh, or uh, warrantless wiretapping that were so controversial during the Bush era. Do you have any information to the contrary? Well, here's what I know, and that is, um, we were very concerned when Brett Kavanaugh was nominated for a seat on the D.C. Circuit. That was back in 2003. And there were several questions raised by um, senators on the Judiciary Committee as to his views on those issues and what he what his role was. He did not provide answers to those questions. And I certainly wouldn't take a supervisor's word for granted in that case. I think it's incumbent upon him to, and we'll see in these records exactly what his, his, his role was. I know this. Several of the senators on the committee, when he was up for consideration, were very concerned that he didn't provide full answers to their questions and that was not forthcoming with documents. So I don't know, you know, for an absolute fact, I just know that they um, kept those records and he certainly did not provide any clear ideas to what his rule has been. What kind of a fight is there going to be to get these records? Because as you pointed out, there are probably millions of them, um, you know, uh, you know, Star's office, everything he did as staff secretary in the White House and the council's office. Um, uh, he touched a lot of paper, particularly in that job as, as staff secretary. But um, the, the, the White House, uh, the executive branch uh, could easily, you know, and I expect will be asserting all sorts of privileges to keep those um, documents from coming out. So what, what's that battle going to look like? Well, I think that's right, with, with one huge exception. Uh, and that exception is that when Elena Kagan was up for consideration by the Senate for the Supreme Court, she was asked to provide all, the entirety of her records as well as emails, and she did that. So I think this time around, Republicans will be hard put not to disclose everything since they required Elena Kagan to provide anything and everything related to her work at the White House. What are you so most eager to, what are you most eager to get your hands on? What when you uh you know talk to your staff um and when you talk to uh, uh staffers on the Senate Judiciary Committee who are who are digging into uh, Brett Kavanaugh's record, uh what's what's at the top of the list? That's I, I think it's hard to say. I think it would it's important to um come to understand Brett Kavanaugh much better than, than, than most people do. Um, so I would think, you know, 
information about his work at the White House, what what he um, took responsibility for, what he thought about that, if his if he took a dim view of um, constitutional rights for detainees, and we know that there are several human rights groups uh, looking into what he wrote and said during that, that would be a, a major concern. Um, I think it's important to, to see what he wrote and to get his records from the time he, he worked for Kent Starr. Um, he has been a, a partisan uh, working for the Republican Party in a Republican White House and now on the court, you know, heavily invested in extreme ideas, this is an opportunity to get to know him much better than, than people do. So I would expect that um, getting his records across a variety of issues would be really important. So how does it, how does it look to you right now? And, um, and, and what do you think would, would or could be your clincher argument uh, to stop him? Well, I think there's no question that this is a cha- this is challenging. It's always challenging to fight a Supreme Court nominee. And you go into these fights knowing that senators don't really like them very much because they, they're personal, they're people. But having said that, um, this fight is going to take on a very different life because it's it's certainly focused on Kavanaugh's record, but it's it's more about the opportunity for the extreme fringe of the right wing, coupled with big business, to cement a hold on the court for the next 40 years. So going into this fight, unlike the Gorsuch fight. He was being considered for Scalia's seat. Everyone knows just how high the stakes are, and I think we'll be paying that much more attention. I'd say people on our side are much more energized and engaged um, than they've than they've ever been. Um, I certainly think that there is um, a desire for people because of Brett Kavanaugh's extremist views on a, on a range of issues will we'll want to carefully review that record. But I think at the outset, going into this, the fact that Donald Trump announced to the world he was picking a candidate opposed to Roe and, a, and opposed to Health care, particularly on health care, this is someone who could deprive millions of Americans of health care and health insurance. I think going into this, we there is that advantage because every Democrat in the United States Senate voted not to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Susan Collins um, voted not to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So I think there, um, in this instance, the president has said what he, who he, who Kavanaugh is, the role he wants Kavanaugh to play, and we have to make sure that that 
that seat remains open. But Nan, look, since the um, first few days uh, since, since uh, uh, Donald Trump nominated Brett Kavanaugh, uh, the conversation um, seems to have shifted a bit from uh, abortion um, and health care, uh, which you've been talking about, to uh, this question of executive power. And based on some of Brett Kavanaugh's writings, a 2009 law, uh, Minnesota Law Review article, uh, where he arg- argued that a president, um, sitting president, uh, shouldn't be indicted or shouldn't shouldn't even be criminally investigated until he or she leaves office, um, and 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 you know people have been the Democrats and liberals, progressives have been saying that he may just be a, a, get if he gets on the Supreme Court, he'll be a protector of Donald Trump in the Mueller investigation. Do you think that that is an argument that has real resonance, or do you think that progressives really ought to stick to? Uh, the kinds of issues that, as you put it, affect you know thousands and thousands of people like health care. I think that's a critically important issue. And in fact, interestingly, he was the only one, the only name on that list of 25 um, who um, made sure that the Senate would have to uh, consider uh, Donald Trump's own uh trials and tribulations vis-a-vis uh Robert Mueller. Um I think they're very much at issue because after all um what you want our courts to do is to serve as a check on abuses by the other two branches of government. And you want the courts not to accept automatically that the president has enormous powers to basically do what he wants to do, to avoid criminal investigations of of any kind. Um, You want the Supreme Court to serve as a check on the other two branches. And therefore, this is a critically important issue because it goes exactly to the role the courts play in our democracy. You know, Nan, you... you, uh couple times now I've called Kavanaugh an extremist uh, or his views uh, extreme. But uh, look, isn't it a fact that, first of all, he would have been at the uh, at the top of the list of any Republican president uh, uh, who might have been elected for the Supreme Court, whether it have been would have been Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, any of them. Would have had a short list in which uh, Brett Kavanaugh was right at the top. And look, as you know, elections have consequences. You, the Democrats, lost. The Republicans won. They won the White House. They won the Senate. Um, And so, unless you're going to just openly accept that Supreme Court confirmation fights now are purely ideological. Nothing about the nature or character of the justice himself or herself. It's just whether it's the, he or she is going to vote with us or against us. Um, you know, do will you at least acknowledge that this is purely a political fight for you and has nothing about and says nothing about the character of Brett Kavanaugh himself or what kind of judge he would be? I think that's a great question. So two, two questions. That's why I asked it. (laughs) (laughs) One, one, one answer is, um, look at Barack Obama's two picks for the Supreme court, very moderate, um, mainstream candidates, neither of whom engendered 
a great deal of opposition from the right because um, they were seen as moderating forces on the court. Republican presidents take a very different stance vis-a-vis the selection of Supreme Court justices. And they do that because presidents run, as did Donald Trump, and you're right, as would Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, and the others. They always run on a platform that promotes uh, the selection of judges. And they remember Donald Trump, when he ran, said at every campaign stop, he talked about the Supreme Court and other Republican candidates would have as well because of one fact, and that is talking about federal judges, the Supreme Court is the best way a Republican president knows to galvanize his base to come out and vote. And that's because for decades now, the right wing in this country and big business have been upset over Brown versus Board, Roe versus Wade, decisions protecting air and water and workers and consumers. And that group, the right-wing base with, of the Republican Party, is very organized around the court. Man, can you, think of, can you think of any candidate for the Supreme Court that Trump could have named and could be confirmed by the Republican-controlled Senate who you would support? And, and don't say Merrick Garland. <laughs> <laughs> who, who Chuck Schumer said Merrick Garland. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I know. So I can, but you know what? I'm who? not going to say it. I'm not going to say it because any nominee, any name I mentioned, <laughs> um, it would be the kiss, the kiss of death. Kiss of death, right. But uh, here's the thing. Think of, there's thousands of Republican lawyers who would be great judges. Name right? one. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not, but think I, I think of law firms here in D.C. and around the country. These would be moderating voices. What, what do but you say? What do you say to those who say, "Yeah, but Kavanaugh's a nice guy." Oh, listen. you know, he coaches his his girls basketball team. He goes to Nats games, regular guy he goes for a drink at the Chevy Chase Lounge where I like to hang out, uh, although I've never seen him there. Uh, I mean, <laughs> like, uh, you know, he's a he's a man of the people. Right. So I would say invite him over for dinner, but don't put him on the Supreme Court. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> All right. So but Nan, notwithstanding Isakoff's uh High-minded questions. Um, (laughs) At the end of the day, uh, this confirmation battle is going to come down to raw politics and math and math in the Senate. And the math in the Senate does not favor uh, uh, the Democrats or progressives. But I am interested in your assessment at this point of whether the two moderate uh, Republicans in the Senate, um, Lisa Murkowski of, of, of Alaska and Susan Collins, are gettable um, uh, for your side, have you spoken to them or their staffs? Um, what 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 is what is it going to take uh, to uh, to win their votes? Uh, I think it, what's going to first of all, I have not spoken to to either of them. It's it's too early, and I, I think they're doing the right thing by waiting until the hearings and waiting until all the documents are produced to 
um, determine what their vote is. I will say this, and it's been discussed a great deal. Both of the women senators um, profess to be pro-choice, pro-abortion. And there is just absolutely no doubt in my mind, or anyone else's, frankly, based on Kavanaugh's record and based on Donald Trump's selection of Kavanaugh because of his anti-Roe views, um, that that they will be under tremendous pressure and have to, I think, endure a lot of soul-searching to announce their decision. And I'm hoping they'll be bold. I'm hoping they'll be courageous. And I'm counting on them to do the right thing. Well, we are looking forward uh, to watching you uh, wage this battle, um, as you uh, have done in so many other cases. And I actually have to say, in the interest of uh, transparency, um, that um, my uh, my wife, Monica Selter, uh, used to work for the Alliance of Justice and worked for you, Nan, um, and, uh, and very much liked working for you. So uh, just... Uh, just so that nobody thinks that I'm engaging in skullduggery by not revealing that, I've just done so. And we love Monica, all of us. Thank you. Yes. All right. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on Skullduggery, and we look forward to having you again as this uh, battle uh, plays out. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks, Nan. Thanks to Tim Flanagan and Nan Aaron for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Skullduggery is also on SiriusXM, and subscribers can catch the latest episode on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays Saturdays at 10 p.m. and Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. We'll talk to you next week.